Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Last night, uh, Brian uh, shared about the the five hindrances, the five traditional uh, challenges in practice. <clears throat> Tonight, I'm going to share another list of five. Uh, the good news, the five um, allies, or uh, traditionally called five spiritual faculties. And uh, I really like this list uh, both to um, get a sense of the importance of balance in practice and also to uh, have an understanding. It helps me understand the, um, the process that we're doing here. Um, and there's two ways to take this list. Uh, and I'll, I'll share with you the five right now so you're not in suspense. Uh, and then I'll explain the two different ways. One, one the list are um, faith, effort or energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. One way to look at this list, these five faculties, spiritual faculties that support our unfolding in practice is, uh, as I said, a balancing. Mindfulness is in the middle and mindfulness is always a balancing factor. It balances between grasping and aversion and many other ways that it balances. There's the seven factors of enlightenment and it's a balancing factor in those as well. Uh, In this list, mindfulness is uh, at the fulcrum, so to speak, and faith is balanced by wisdom. If there's too much faith and not enough wisdom, uh, we can fall into blind faith. But if there's more wisdom, or that is a a kind of investigative um, exploration without a a heartfelt quality, without some juice in it, it can become very dry and even lead to uh, skepticism and, and doubt. So those two need to be balanced, the heart and the mind, so to speak. And uh, concentration and energy need to be balanced. If there's uh, too much energy and not enough concentration or stilling, we become very agitated. Uh, If there's more stilling, the factor of, of concentration, and not enough energy, we can fall into uh, dullness and uh, aren't bright enough to see things clearly. 
So it's, it's useful to, to think of this whole process that we're doing as one of coming into balance, and particularly with those two pairs as well, the heart and the mind, and our energy, uh, and uh, a, a sense of uh, stilling or focus, composure. Um, I'm going to uh, more explore about the linear way to hold these, just another way to see them, uh, to understand the unfolding of, of practice in the order that they're traditionally given. <clears throat> Not that it's like you get one and then you go on to the next one and then you master that one and then go to the third one. It's more of a, of a hologram, but on the whole, uh, in general, there is um, a, a very um, good map for the unfolding of, of what we're doing here. So let's look at each of these. So the first one, faith, um, which can be a word that uh, some people are very moved by, inspired by, and others are turned off by. Oh my goodness, am I back in Sunday school where I didn't pay attention and I was scolded or had to believe something that I couldn't get behind. Um, it's a very, uh, a, a very um, heartful and um, powerful word, whatever your reaction is. And you might even, as I'm saying this, just notice what's your reaction when you hear the word faith? Oh my goodness, do I have enough faith? You know. The word actually in Pali uh, that is often translated as faith is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, which... Um, really means to put one's heart upon, a heartful quality. Faith is one definition or one uh, yeah, translation. Uh, others that you might relate to uh, maybe a bit more easily, uh, if faith doesn't f do it for you, um, a sense of trust, trust in the process trust in uh, your own capacity, trust in the unfolding, trust in the Dharma. Conviction is another. Confidence is another. All of them are pointing to this um, capacity to show up with a wholeheartedness um, for our practice. And it's what gets us here in some way, uh, even from the very first start uh, when you were, uh, before you thought of coming on a month-long or a two-month retreat, um, something called you. I mentioned this the, the first evening. Something touched your heart that made you more and more interested or curious or inspired to, um, to check out 
this, this whole path, the teachings, practice. And that initial inspiration can be uh, a very powerful uh, moment in our life where you are mm, inspired by a talk or a book that you've read. How many people have read a book that has made a deep impact on them and said, wow, I think I'm going for it? Anybody? Yeah. It's cool, isn't that? Or maybe you've heard somebody give a talk or saw the Dalai Lama or some uh, teacher or a, 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 a YouTube or something like that and said, wow, okay, that person knows something and I want to know what they know. How many people has that been true of? Okay. <clears throat> or maybe a friend has come back from a retreat or somehow there's something different about them and you say, wow, what are you into anyway? You know? And maybe they got you here. Hopefully they're going to be a good friend when you leave here as well. How many people have been inspired by friends or others that they knew? Yeah. And some, sometimes that, that faith or that um, what's initially called bright faith that's the, the term for it, um, can light us up. I can remember very well when I first got turned on to this stuff, first through uh, reading a book that many people were uh, uh, deeply impacted, uh, Be Here Now by Ram Das. How many people were impacted by Be Here Now? Yeah. Changed my life. Oh my God, I'm not the only one that thinks like this. You know? But these, this guy knows something. I want to know. And then when I went out to um, um, the first summer at Naropa uh, in 1974 to see Ramdas because he was the, uh, one of the two marquee names and I wanted to be around him and I asked him, well, what about meditation? I've been doing a few different things, TM and uh, Transcendental Meditation and a few other things. And, uh, and I said, what should I do with meditation? I know I'm supposed to be doing something and what's the real meditation? Yeah. And he said, uh, go check out this guy, uh, Joseph Goldstein, who's teaching a class in Essential Buddhism. And um, I said, okay, I went. And I went there and when I first got into that class, uh, this is in Boulder, Colorado, I went into the class and Joseph, he didn't strike me as the great guru. <laughs> you know, but he sounded like he was from New York. I was from New York. He sounded like he was from Brooklyn. I was from Queens. <laughs> and he was just a, a couple of few years older than me and, and didn't look very different than, than I did. And I was kind of sitting back and judging that package for, oh, the first 10 minutes or so. So this is the great meditation teacher, you know. <laughs> and then uh, after not that long a time, I started to hear what he was saying. And although he wasn't so different from me, at least in appearance, 
it was clear he knew something that I didn't. He was so comfortable in his own skin and just sharing the truth from the heart with such clarity. And he was saying it was, it's possible to not be run by your neurotic thoughts. That had never occurred to me as a possibility before. But there was something in the way he said it that I believed. And I said, wow, he's not so different from me. And he's saying, it's really possible. And I'm going for it. Because I had a lot of suffering, a lot of confusion, was very uh, self-judging, didn't like myself at all. And, and he was saying, it's really possible to come to some inner peace. And I just went for it. <clears throat> and those first, that first summer or, or more, it was, oh, Joseph, 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 Joseph. You know, I'd <laughs> fallen in love with, with my guru and uh, not realized that I, I'd fallen in love with the Dharma. Um, that kind of bright faith is really... Uh, is really beautiful and, and something to, uh, I hope you remember when you got turned on in whatever way touched you so deeply that you'd end up here on a month or two-month two retreat. Um, don't forget it. It's, it's, quite, uh, it's been quite a gift in your karmic journey. There are other uh, sources of faith or inspiration for me, that kind of bright faith uh, remembering, um, hearing the Buddha's words, very simple statement, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. But it is possible. Wow. Well, the Buddha seemed like he was committed to saying the truth, right? If it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so, but it is possible. And this is why I teach. So that kind of, of faith uh, can, can really uh, brighten us and maybe light us up and um, you know, get the fire going. And it is, um, it's an, an antidote to doubt. And as... Brian was talking about last night, doubt is uh, one of the, the most common obstacles and difficulties in mind in our meditation practice. <clears throat> so it's not like once you get turned on to bright faith, you're not going to be subject to doubt. In fact, the deepening of that brightness to a more... Um, embodied understanding is what we're doing here. And if you have doubt, as, uh, as Brian was sharing last night, you have a lot of company. Even the Buddha, before he was enlightened, Brian might have mentioned this last night, you know, what gives you the right to think that you can become enlightened? Doubt, the, the final weapon of Mara. 
just before he's enlightened, or Jesus on the cross, God, why hast thou forsaken me? So you've got some good company if doubt arises in your mind. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And it's something that can be worked with. Because um, this practice takes some courage. Where do you get that courage? From some either bright inspiration or as you read or hear the teachings, maybe they make more sense to you. And there's a kind of um, uh, a, a faith that comes from comprehending and understanding the teachings that makes you want to go, go forth or you uh, use the, the refuges that we started the retreat with, the three refuges that the Buddha said can be your support when, the, when your doubt is, is, is there and you want some inspiration. Refuge in the Buddha in that figure who found his own freedom and from, for the Buddha that's right inside of you that he said, just like he, you have the capacity to awaken. Or refuge in the Dharma, in the body of teachings as they might make more and more sense to you. But even the Buddha said, don't take what I say on face value. You look for yourself. But there's something that seems to have a, a beautiful, um, uh, comprehensive um, sensibility and uh, depth of wisdom that touches the heart. It says, there's something here. Or a refuge in the Dharma on a more fundamental level that says, oh, life is giving me what I need to wake up. Or refuge in the Sangha. All the people who've done this over this many centuries and the monastic Sangha who've uh, gone forth and devoted their, their life to the spiritual path and the community of like-minded friends. It's, it makes a difference, doesn't it, to be sitting here with others and when you might find yourself a little bit uh, wavering in your inspiration to see other people are doing it. You're, we're all part of, of this community and we are giving each other our own um, honest uh, investigation and our own love of the Dharma. And that's a source of, of a lot of inspiration and faith and confidence. But that's not as deep and um, uh, transformative as what is called verified faith, where it's not just a reflection or a bright inspiration from outside, but it's something that you know for yourself to be true. And that was what the Buddha said. Don't believe in any authorities don't believe in the books. Don't believe in the Buddha. Don't believe in your own thoughts that you prefer. 
But look for yourself, and when you see for yourself this leads to suffering, then if you don't, do not want to suffer, then abandon it. And if you, when you see for yourself this leads to happiness and well-being, then follow that. So what we're cultivating here in a very um, powerful and direct way is verified faith where you see for yourself the truth of these teachings. You might hear a Dharma talk and say, yeah, that makes sense. Don't stop there. See for yourself the, uh, the power of, of the practice. And sometimes the the understandings and the faith uh, kind of sneak up from behind us where we don't even realize what we're learning until we kind of get it for the thousandth time. You know, Oh, yeah. Uh, on one retreat, one of my early retreats, it was my second retreat, and I had an incredible doubt. I tried to sit, and when I sat, my mind was everywhere, and I thought this was really weird that we were all just pretending that we were being spiritual and looking like spiritual beings, but just really freaking out inside like I was, you know. And I wasn't so sure about the, the teachers, what they knew. I thought I thought they knew something, but I don't know, maybe not, or the, or the teachings, and it was really bad, and I, I tried to sit, I couldn't sit, I tried to walk, I couldn't walk, and finally I just said, enough of this, you know, oh God, I am just exhausted, and I decided to go up to my, my space in this meditation center up in uh, Washington State, and I had this little cubicle in this uh, dormitory-like uh, setting. And, um, and I was just going to just chill out. And on my dresser was uh, a picture of um, the guru from, Neem, from uh, uh, Be Here Now, Neem Karoli Baba, who also called Maharaji, who for me has always been a, a real heart connection. And there he was, a picture, looking back at me, smiling back with a little twinkle in his eye, saying, uh, hmm, having a pretty hard time, aren't we? (laughs) And when I I saw that smile, like just kind of in a very loving way, looking back and saying, you know, yes, I understand, you're freaking out, but it's really not that bad, you know? And in a moment, I just realized I had this, I was in this prison in my mind of doubt. And in that moment, as soon as I saw him smile and I started to smile at the absurdity of where my mind had taken me, all the doubt vanished for a little while. But I was so excited that I said, wow, I've conquered doubt. And I couldn't wait to tell my teacher in an interview. Unfortunately, it was not till the next day. 
And from this incredible exhilaration, wow, doubt was here and now it's gone. And then I got really high and spun out and then I crashed <laughs> and then I f- got exhausted and then I got confused and I, and I went through every mind state imaginable until the interview. And then I got to the interview and walked in and Joseph said, so? How's it going? And I said, in complete innocence and total exasperation, it's always changing. (laughs) And he said, that's it. You got it. And I said, oh yeah, you keep on saying that, don't you? (laughs) It is. It's always changing. Oh, Is that an insight? Yeah. (laughs) Have you seen that for yourself? We come to these understandings in ways that we least expect it. So beautiful. Somebody just the other day in in an interview was, was really beautiful who trying very sincerely and trying to make their experience be in a certain way. And then they came to, oh, just let everything be as it is. And as soon as they got that, everything fell into place. Oh, I don't have to struggle. Last year on one retreat, uh, on this retreat, one, one yogi came in and said, and he'd been practicing very diligently for quite some time. He said, I've just come to realize that nothing more, what did he say? Nothing more is needed than what's happening right now. Now, you can hear those words, but it's different when you really are talking from a place of understanding. And when he said it, I got a transmission myself. And he was telling me this good news. You know, nothing more is needed than what's happening right now. And I said, yeah, that's it. Stay with that. Stay with that understanding. Because once you get it, nothing and no one can take it away. You might forget But when your heart has been touched and your body gets it, not just an idea, but there's an embodied understanding, that's what the insight, where the insight is working you on a deeper level. And I really encourage, if you do, if you are graced with a moment like that where you're touched by something that really rings true to you, to... Let yourself feel the truth of that. Let it be remembered in your body. Not that you're trying to grasp it, not that you're trying to make the bells and whistles happen again, but there's something in you that knows that. And I'll, I'll just share with you in my own practice, this kind of seems silly, but just to give you a, a, a sense of it, one, one on one uh, fall retreat, in, uh, at IMS 
just stirring a cup of Cafix, you know, the coffee substitute. Just, <laughs> I had one of mo my most profound understandings of impermanence that I've ever had. It, go figure, right? <laughs> just stirring a cup of Cafix and looking at the bubbles and seeing world systems and seeing atoms and seeing it all and it really moved me. And all I need to do, as I'm even just telling you now, is just remember stirring that cup of Cafix in that table. You're, I don't know if you're gonna get a transmission. I'm not <laughs> looking for that. But just, I know exactly where I was and exactly that moment, and my body remembers. Not to have that cosmic experience, but there's something in you that remembers if you let it register. And so that's a, just a moment of grace or good karma or whatever, the unfolding. And faith really is, um, is something that uh, lets us just trust in the process. Not necessarily, faith does not mean that everything's gonna work out just fine. That's not what it means. Faith is different from hope. And there's this beautiful line from Seneca, you cease to be afraid when you cease to hope because hope is accompanied by fear. And I, of course, you know, I start my emails, hope you're doing well. You know, it's not, <laughs> we can hope, but that's a different hope than I hope that everything works out fine. You're here to learn how to be here for the ride, not to get to some magical place, some kind of magical destination. Faith or trust, if you'd like, even more, is a sense that your awareness can meet the moment when it comes, that you have the capacity to open up to experience. And that's very different than everything working out just fine. So the faith or the trust in the process leads to the next of these faculties, which is effort or energy. Because you have enough trust that brought you here, you put in the effort to be here, to do this practice. And effort is a very key issue in practice, as probably you've seen. Maybe you've had that thought more than once. Am I doing it right? Am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? How many people have had thoughts like that? Yeah, it's good to see you're not alone. Yeah. And you get very different messages from different teachers or even the same teacher at different times. You, know. you can hear, I've practiced with teachers that say, you know, heroic effort, give it everything you've got. If your leg is falling off, just keep noting it. Falling off, falling off, falling off, you know. <laughs> Turn up the jets. And there, practice it. there is a value to practicing with that wholehearted effort if you can remember to keep things light. 
Um, then there's other teachers who say, simple and easy, Meningerji, one of my teachers and, and uh, Joseph's uh, first main teacher, simple and easy, settle back into the moment, empty phenomena rolling on. Here's from a great Tibetan master, uh, Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. <clears throat> Only our searching for happiness prevents us from, see it, from seeing it. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Sounds pretty good, huh? They tell you that. Those are the higher teachings in Tibetan practice. And you sometimes don't hear those teachings until you've gone through the preliminary practices, which include 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantra recitations, and visualizations. And after you do that, they say, just relax, you know? <laughs> yeah. Both are needed. It definitely takes some effort to bring yourself to land in the present moment. But once you're here, once you're just here, resting in the present moment, any kind of efforting to make it a better moment is extra. And it takes you out of complete connection with what's here. So it's finding a balance of effort. The, the famous story, was it talked about the lute? Have you talked about the, the strength? No, no. The, the a famous uh, a story of one monk in the Buddha's time who was really trying hard and he was getting very tight and the, the Buddha was seeing he, how, how hard he, a, a time he was having and he said, um, uh, weren't you a musician before you became a, a monk? And he said, yes. And he said, well, let me ask you, what happened, what did you play? Oh, I played the lute. What happened when the string was, uh, was wound too tight? Oh, the pitch was too high. What would happen if the string was too loose? Oh, too low. Just right. Just have the right amount of tension. Not too tight, not too loose, and the practice will unfold. And this is something that we have to keep on exploring for ourselves. What's the right amount? But it's not like, oh, this is the right amount and this is what I'm, how I'm supposed to land and just stay here for the rest of the retreat because our energy is continually in flux like everything else. So we have to keep on checking in. Oh, am I too tight? Lighten up. Oh, am I too lazy and, lay, and laid back, well, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, I'm not. You know, let's just see what happens. You know. It's not going to happen. You know. So it takes a willingness to just come back when you see you've gone. And everything comes down to that particular um, effort of being here as best you can 
and when you see you've gone, to come back. But to come back with kindness, as I said earlier, and gentleness and forgiveness and just the sincere intention to be here once again. You might have lots of ideas of what good practice would look like. Let go of those ideas because generally what they do will just be setting you up for some kind of report card that you're either going to pass or fail. And if you have in mind that a good yogi is a hindrance-free yogi, you're setting yourself up for a lot of trouble. It's not so much that you don't have hindrances, it's that you learn to work with them. They're all, work, all workable, as uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, the, uh, the Tibetan teacher said, they're all manure for Bodhi. Manure for enlightenment. They're the fertilizer, the, the yuck that you don't think is any good that becomes the compost out of which everything grows, your practice grows. So rather than having some idea, oh, if I'm really doing it right, I won't have that, this so many emotions and I'll just be equanimous. Or if I'm really doing it right, then I'll have a lot of emotions and they'll finally get released. You know? Or I won't have thought. Or I'll be crystal clear. Or I'll be bright. Or I'll be whatever it is. Those are just ideas. Rather than looking at what is happening on the outside to check in about your effort, there's one simple um, mm, quality that I would encourage you to check in with, and that is just your sincerity of heart. That's really what it comes down to. Your sincerity, not your effort or your will power, and your sincerity might give you the, the sense that, oh, this is what's needed right now for me to show up as best I can. This is from a yogi many years ago who discovered this. He said, it's such a relief to know that I'm not in charge of my moments of awareness, that these are indeed just beautiful gifts. I think I've been laboring under the assumption that by sheer effort of will, I could manufacture awareness and that the only reason it wasn't happening was because of laziness, weak brain power, lack of dedication, etc., etc. So this shift of emphasis towards faith and sincerity of heart, letting the process evolve at, at its own speed, in its own direction, has made me so happy so happy that it's really hard to come back to the breath right now. So happy. Let your own sincerity be your lead. That's where the effort comes from. And that will look very different from sitting to sitting because your energy is different from sitting to sitting. And let go of any ideas that you might have of what it will look like. It's got to be a balanced effort. 
and it's a continual adjustment. All you need to do is ask yourself in a very sincere way, what will support my practice most right now? What will help me show up most in a balanced way? That might mean really taking a, an interested look at, what's at, at the breath or an emotion or whatever. It might mean going for a cup of tea. It might mean going for a walk. It might mean really doing the walking with, uh, with a wholeheartedness. It's never too late, no matter where you've gone, it's never too late to come back and say, oh, let's start the meditation right now and put my heart into it. Not straining, but just a heartfelt willingness to be here and let the Dharma reveal itself. So, faith leading to effort, which begets energy in itself, and that effort to be mindful leads to mindfulness and to an increased development of mindfulness. Mindfulness, as I said, is the balancing factor. And it is, it, we keep on coming back to that. Have you noticed that kind of keeps on coming back to mindfulness? Mindfulness is an amazing um, quality of mind that the Buddha said will lead you all the way to freedom. It is the factor that can weaken all the unwholesome states of greed, hatred, and delusion that can cultivate all the wholesome states of kindness and generosity and wisdom that brings about a balance between effort and, uh, and concentration, between energy and concentration, and between faith and wisdom. It's a purifying factor, and we've been cultivating it over these days in many different ways. There's feeling the breath. There's noticing the body sitting here. There's noticing emotions or hindrances. There's noticing thoughts. There's knowing that you're walking and taking a step and walking or that you're eating and you're eating. There's different lenses to be mindful as well as different objects to be mindful of. Sometimes the mindfulness will be quite um, precise. Maybe you'll be drawn into something. Oh, look at that. It's like people fall in love with lizards here at Spirit Rock, you know. Because when the mindfulness gets strong, it's, oh my goodness, look at that. I love you. <laughs> can even fall in love with plants, you know, and just see them growing. You can practically see them growing, see them alive. When you're so tuned in, everything becomes alive. But not to think that mindfulness looks any one way, that it's got to be a zoom, precise feeling the hair follicles sway in the breeze as you're feeling the breath, you know. I mean, it's cool when you can feel that, 
know. But that's just one kind of mindfulness. To feel and see a whole um, constellation of feelings and know, oh, here's sadness or here's fear or my ultimate label of last resort when I have no idea what's going on, wrapping the whole thing into one big package and saying, oh, confusion. Oh, confused Buddha. And in that moment, you're clear. You might be clearly confused, but you're clear about it. Oh, confusion is happening. And that moment of mindfulness is just as liberating as noticing the subtle sensations in the nostrils or the belly. So not to get into an idea that it's supposed to look any one way. It's simply making connection with what's here in a very relaxed and interested way. And interest is the key. This is from uh, Mary Oliver, Mindful. It's a beautiful poem. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. O good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. Mindfulness is fun. It is. It's not a chore. It's not like, oh God, now I have to be present for my life. You know? <laughs> it's, this is your life and you have just a finite number of moments in this lifetime. Why not be here for them? This is one that will never be here again. It's never been here before and will never be here again. Why not be here for it? Mindfulness is not figuring out just so you know. And here's a little tip that will save you a lot of hassle if you get it. When we're meditating, it's so easy to get caught into trying to understand what's happening. Not. Don't do that. Don't try to understand. Particularly, watch out for the word why, a very dangerous word. Why is this happening right now? Why am I so spaced out right now? Why can't I meditate better than I do right now? Why do I keep on thinking about my high school prom when I'm here? You know? Don't try to figure it out. I'll share with you a very profound teaching from a yogi 
who was giving herself a lot of trouble on her first retreat. And finally, towards the end of the retreat, she got it and wrote me this note, which I have saved for many years. The one thing that is indelibly in my brain is finally getting you don't have to figure it out. That would never have registered as an option before. Just today when I was doing walking meditation, struggling as my thoughts were going round and round, those words came into my mind. I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going. The rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself. And I resumed my walking. What a revelation. If you have a tendency to try to figure out and understand, please let go of that. You'll save yourself so much hassle. Just see what's happening right now and open to it, as I've been saying, with that kind and interested and relaxed awareness. And everything will follow from that. The moments of mindfulness, as you make the effort to be mindful, the moments of mindfulness lead to concentration. Concentration is a very powerful aid in this process. It happens naturally, not that you're trying to get concentrated. I think I might have mentioned here, if you say, I'm going to get concentrated if it kills me. It just might if you have that kind of an attitude, you know. Don't get tight. Don't try hard. Actually, concentration comes from a relaxed and spacious mind. It's a it's a, not a linear kind of a thing, though. It's just moment after moment after moment. Those moments of concentration build on each other. And that's why continuity has been stressed in such a, you know, a consistent way. Because those moments build. And the way it works is the more moments of mindfulness that you can put together the stronger the mindfulness becomes and the concentration gets deeper. The stronger the concentration, the more interesting things are. Because you see more. The more interesting they are, the more you want to pay attention. And so you want to be there and the mindfulness just builds on itself. But it takes that effort and willingness to come back before it kind of builds into momentum. But if you can go through the day seeing every moment just as sacred as any other moment, you'll really serve yourself. It's not just sitting here in the hall and feeling your breath or knowing you're sitting. It's brushing your teeth. It's putting on your shoes and tying your shoelaces. If you're brushing your teeth is just as sacred an act as sitting in here in the hall and breathing, then you're on to something. Because everything is worthy of your attention. 
It doesn't mean you have to pounce on experience, but it can be one big dance. Ah, let's be here for this, and let's be here for this, and let's be here for this. You can take your time. There are things that aid concentration. Continuity in whatever action we do. Patience. If you are impatient, any kind of contraction of mind will work against concentration. That's why relaxation is such an important ally. So you just show up and do the best you can and your moments of sincere mindfulness will build. The resolve to come back every time you've gone, as I said, that's the one thing that you have control over. It occurred to me on one retreat, I don't really have control over concentration or mindfulness. The one thing I have control over is when my mind wanders to bring it back in a loving way. And that's all I need to do and the concentration and mindfulness follow from that. Keeping it very simple, doing one thing at a time. We're so good in multitasking in our life. This is something radical. Unitasking. Just doing one thing at a time. Continuity. Uh, it was, I don't know if the, uh, I don't think it's been shared, the, um, the image of putting a uh, kettle on the stove. Has that been mentioned? You know, you put a, a tea kettle on a stove and if you keep taking it off every 30 seconds or so, it's not going to cook. But if you leave it on the stove, even if sometimes the flame is lower than sometimes it's higher, if you keep that, that flame on just even a little and you keep that kettle on the stove, after a while it's going to boil. In the same way, if you keep that continuity of practice, it will unfold. Investigation, being really curious as to uh, what's happening, having a sense of wonder, really makes a difference. I, I've shared this in, in, uh, um, in other retreats. I have a birthday card that I've, I, I've never given away. Uh, and I've, it's never been written in. Actually, I have two because I came across it twice in a store. And it's of, a, it's of a, a, an infant um, who is holding a booger in his hand straight out from his nose, right? And fascinated, cross-eyed, mesmerized. Mm. And you open it up and it says, you always were easy to entertain. Happy birthday. Yeah. But that image of being just fascinated, that is a great ally to practice. Just wanting to understand, wanting to see. Investigation. That willingness to be here, those moments of mindfulness develop and concentration definitely um, is a result. That leads to the last of these, which is wisdom. Mindful, um, uh, faith leading to effort, the effort to be mindful leading to mindfulness, 
mindfulness leading to concentration and concentration leading to wisdom. You don't have to make wisdom arise. The more you try and say, come on, let's get some wisdom here. When is it going to happen? They call this insight meditation. Well, how about it? You know, um, It's just not going to work. But because you can see things more deeply, more penetratingly because of that concentrated mindfulness, life starts to reveal itself to you. And wisdom naturally arises. This is something that you don't have to figure out, but it's something that all of a sudden you see, aha, oh, I see. Have you had that experience? Not when you're trying to figure out. There's a, a line in, uh, in the Third Zen Patriarch. It says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Have you noticed that? When you let go of trying to figure out, ah, things become revealed. What is wisdom? In this sense, it's seeing three particular aspects of experience. One, that everything changes. Have you noticed that? How many thoughts have you had today? How many moods have you had today? How many sensations have you had today? It's always changing. Like I said in that interview. The more you see that things change, the more you see and get intuitively that holding on to changing experience is not only futile, but a setup for suffering. And so you start to let go of that grasping, as Joseph calls it, rope burn. Holding on to that which is changing is rope burn. You know, when you're in gym class and, and the rope got tugged fast or you're in a tug of war. And because it's unsatisfactory and suffering to hold on to grasping, to changing experience, you also start to see that you too are changing experience. You are a flow of experience, a pattern of experience called you that is continually transforming. And you start to see the solidity of who you think you are break up as a a simple experiment maybe to point to this selfless nature of reality. Just close your eyes for a moment. We normally think of ourselves as nouns, as some solid entity to whom life is happening. And just for a few moments, instead of thinking of yourself as a noun, think of yourself as a verb. You are a field of activity. Just feel life as it expresses itself in this form called you. You are a verb. 
and that solidity starts to break up. Just relax in that. You don't have to be anything other than that expression of life. And so you start seeing through this sense of self. You are simply life expressing itself through you. And not only that, but what you think of as you is really a flow of processes. I'll share with you just uh, this passage as we come to the end. This is from Lewis Thomas, who wrote a fantastic book, Lives of a Cell. You are an ecosystem. A good case can be made for our non-existence as entities. We're not made up, as we had always supposed, of successively enriched packets of our own parts. We are shared, rented, occupied at the interior of our own cells, driving them, providing the oxidative energy that sends us out for the improvement of each shining day, are mitochondria, and in a strict sense, they're not ours. They turn out to be little separate creatures, replicating in their own fashion, privately, with their own DNA and RNA quite different from ours. Without them, we would not move a muscle, drum a finger, think a thought. Mitochondria are stable and responsible lodgers, and I choose to trust them. But what of the other little animals similarly established in my cells, sorting and balancing me, clustering me together, my centrioles, basal bodies, and probably a good many other more obscure tiny beings at work inside my cells, each with its own special genome, are as foreign and as essential as aphids in anthills. My cells are no longer the pure line entities I was raised with. They are ecosystems more complex than Jamaican Bay. I like to think that they work in my interest, that each breath they draw for me. But perhaps it is they who walk through the local park in the early morning, sensing my senses, listening to my music, thinking my thoughts. You're not who you thought you are, but you're an amazing expression of life, perfectly coming out as you. So as this practice unfolds, the wisdom of seeing how impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and selflessness are really the core characteristics of reality there is a freedom and a liberation that results. So this is what we're doing here. In every moment that we're mindful, we are opening up to a deep understanding and wisdom. And the faith or the trust in the process to put in the effort to be mindful develops into a deeper mindfulness which leads to a concentrated mind which flowers as wisdom. These are the five spiritual faculties. And you're doing it in every moment that you're mindful.
So we could just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. So once again, there'll be a, a sitting at uh, at nine o'clock with some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.